Section 10 of Wandering Ghosts This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison Wandering Ghosts by Francis Marion Crawford Man Overboard Part 3 That evening, before turning in, we were standing by the rail having a quiet smoke, watching the lights of the city a quarter of a mile off, reflected in the still water. There was music of some sort ashore in a sailor's dance-house, I dare say, and I had no doubt that most of the men who had left the ship were there, and already full of jiggy-jiggy. The music played a lot of sailors' tunes that ran into each other, and we could hear the men's voices in the chorus now and then. One followed another, and then it was Nancy Lee, loud and clear, and the men singing, Yo-ho, heave-ho! I have no ear for music, said Captain Hackstaff, but it appears to me that's the tune that man was whistling the night we lost the man overboard. I don't know why it has stuck in my head, and of course it's all nonsense, but it seems to me that I have heard it all the rest of the trip. I didn't say anything to that, but I wondered just how much the old man had understood. Then we turned in, and I slept ten hours without opening my eyes. I stuck to the Helen P. Jackson after that, as long as I could stand a fore and after. But that night, when we lay in Havana, was the last time I ever heard Nancy Lee on board of her. The spare hand had gone ashore with the rest, and he never came back, and he took his tune with him. But all those things are just as clear in my memory as if they had happened yesterday. After that, I was in deep water for a year or more, and after I came home, I got my certificate, and what with having friends, and having saved a little money, and having had a small legacy from an uncle in Norway, I got the command of a coastwise vessel with a small share in her. I was at home three weeks before going to sea, and Jack Benton saw my name in the local papers, and wrote to me. He said that he had left the sea, and was trying farming and he was going to be married, and he asked if I wouldn't come over for that, for it wasn't more than forty minutes by train, and he and Marnie would be proud to have me at the wedding. I remembered how I had heard one brother ask the other whether Marnie knew. That meant whether she knew he wanted to marry her, I suppose. She had taken her time about it, for it was pretty nearly three years then since we had lost Jim Benton overboard. I had nothing particular to do while we were getting ready for sea, nothing to prevent me from going over for a day, I mean, and I thought I'd like to see Jack Benton and have a look at the girl he was going to marry. I wondered whether he had grown cheerful again and had got rid of that drawn look he had when he told me it wasn't his fault, 
How could it have been his fault, anyhow? So I wrote to Jack that I would come down and see him married. And when the day came, I took the train and got there about ten o'clock in the morning. I wish I hadn't. Jack met me at the station, and he told me that the wedding was to be late in the afternoon, and that they weren't going off on any silly wedding trip, he and Marnie, but were just going to walk home from her mother's house to his cottage. That was good enough for him, he said. I looked at him hard for a minute after we met. When we had parted, I had a sort of idea that he might take to drink, but he hadn't. He looked very respectable and well-to-do in his black coat and high city collar, but he was thinner and bonier than when I had known him, and there were lines in his face, and I thought his eyes had a queer look in them, half shifty, half scared. He needn't have been afraid of me, for I didn't mean to talk to his bride about the Helen B. Jackson. He took me to his cottage first, and I could see that he was proud of it. It wasn't above a cable's length from high water mark, but the tide was running out, and there was already a broad stretch of hard, wet sand on the other side of the beach road. Jack's bit of land ran back behind the cottage, about a quarter of a mile, and he said that some of the trees we saw were his. The fences were neat and well kept, and there was a fair-sized barn a little way from the cottage, and I saw some nice-looking cattle in the meadows, but it didn't look to me to be much of a farm, and I thought that before long Jack would have to leave his wife to take care of it and go to sea again. But I said it was a nice farm, so as to seem pleasant, and as I don't know much about these things, I dare say it was all the same. I never saw it but that once. Jack told me that he and his brother had been born in the cottage, and that when their father and mother died, they leased the land to Marnie's father, but had kept the cottage to live in when they came home from sea for a spell. It was as neat a little place as you would care to see, the floors as clean as the decks of a yacht, and the paint as fresh as a man of war. Jack always was a good painter. There was a nice parlour on the ground floor, and Jack had papered it, and had hung the walls with photographs of ships and foreign ports, and with things he had brought home from his voyages. A boomerang, a South Sea club, Japanese straw hats, and a Gibraltar fan with a bullfight on it, and all that sort of gear. It looked to me as if Miss Marnie had taken a hand in arranging it. There was a brand-new polished iron Franklin stove set into the old fireplace, and a red tablecloth from Alexandria embroidered with those outlandish Egyptian letters. It was all as bright and homelike as possible, and he showed me everything and was proud of everything, and I liked him the better for it but I wished that his voice would sound more cheerful as it did when we first sailed in the Helen B, and that the drawn look would go out of his face for a minute. 
Jack showed me everything and took me upstairs, and it was all the same bright and fresh and ready for the bride. But on the upper landing there was a door that Jack didn't open. When we came out of the bedroom, I noticed that it was ajar, and Jack shut it quickly and turned the key. That lock's no good, he said half to himself. The door is always open. I didn't pay much attention to what he said, but as we went down the short stairs, freshly painted and varnished, so that I was almost afraid to step on them, he spoke again. That was his room, sir. I have made a sort of storeroom of it. You may be wanting it in a year or so, I said, wishing to be pleasant. I guess we won't use his room for that, Jack answered in a low voice. Then he offered me a cigar from a fresh box in the parlour, and he took one, and we lit them and went out, and as we opened the front door, there was Marnie Brewster standing in the path as if she were waiting for us. She was a fine-looking girl, and I didn't wonder that Jack had been willing to wait three years for her. I could see that she hadn't been brought up on steam heat and cold storage, but had grown into a woman by the seashore. She had brown eyes and fine brown hair and a good figure. "'This is Captain Torkeldson,' said Jack. "'This is Miss Brewster, Captain, and she is glad to see you.' "'Well, I am,' said Miss Marnie, "'for Jack has often talked to us about you, Captain.' She put out her hand and took mine, and shook it heartily, and I suppose I said something, but I know I didn't say much. The front door of the cottage looked toward the sea, and there was a straight path leading to the gate on the beach road. There was another path from the steps of the cottage that turned to the right, broad enough for two people to walk easily, and it led straight across the fields, through gates, to a larger house about a quarter of a mile away. That was where Marnie's mother lived, and the wedding was to be there. Jack asked me whether I would like to look round the farm before dinner, but I told him I didn't know much about farms. Then he said he just wanted to look round himself a bit, as he mightn't have much more chance that day, and he smiled, and Marnie laughed. "'Show the captain the way to the house, Marnie,' he said. "'I'll be along in a minute.' So Marnie and I began to walk along the path, and Jack went up toward the barn. "'It was sweet of you to come, Captain,' Miss Marnie began, "'for I have always wanted to see you.' "'Yes,' I said, expecting something more. "'You see, I always knew them both,' she went on. They used to take me out in a dory to catch codfish when I was a little girl, and I liked them both, she added thoughtfully. Jack doesn't care to talk about his brother now. That's natural. But you won't mind telling me how it happened, will you? I should so much like to know. Well, I told her about the voyage, and what happened that night, when we fell in with a gale of wind, and that it hadn't been anybody's fault for I wasn't going to admit that it was my old captain's if it was. But I didn't tell her anything about what happened afterwards. 
as she didn't speak, I just went on talking about the two brothers, and how like they had been, and how when poor Jim was drowned and Jack was left, I took Jack for him. I told her that none of us had ever been sure which was which. I wasn't always sure myself, she said, unless they were together. Leastways, not for a day or two after they came home from sea. And now it seems to me that Jack is more like poor Jim as I remember him than he ever was, for Jim was always more quiet as if he were thinking. I told her I thought so too. We passed the gate and went into the next field, walking side by side. Then she turned her head to look for Jack, but he wasn't in sight. I shan't forget what she said next. Are you sure now? she asked. I stood stock still, and she went on a step, and then turned and looked at me. We must have looked at each other while you could count five or six. I know it's silly, she went on. It's silly and it's awful, too, and I've got no right to think it, but sometimes I can't help it. You see, it was always Jack I meant to marry. Yes, I said stupidly. I suppose so. She waited a minute and began walking on slowly before she went on again. I am talking to you as if you were an old friend, Captain, and I have only known you five minutes. It was Jack I meant to marry, but now he is so like the other one. When a woman gets a wrong idea into her head, there is only one way to make her tired of it, and that is to agree with her. That's what I did, and she went on talking the same way for a little while, and I kept on agreeing and agreeing, until she turned round on me. "'You know you don't believe what you say,' she said, and laughed. "'You know that Jack is Jack right enough, and it's Jack I am going to marry.' "'Of course I said so, for I didn't care whether she thought me a weak creature or not. I wasn't going to say a word that could interfere with her happiness, and I didn't intend to go back on Jack Benton. But I remembered what he had said when he left the ship in Havana.' that it wasn't his fault. All the same, Miss Marnie went on, as a woman will, without realising what she was saying. All the same, I wish I had seen it happen, then I should know. Next minute, she knew that she didn't mean that, and was afraid that I would think her heartless, and began to explain that she would really rather have died herself than have seen poor Jim go overboard. Women haven't got much sense, anyhow. All the same, I wondered how she could marry Jack, if she had a doubt that he might be Jim after all. I suppose she had really got used to him since she had given up the sea, and had stayed ashore, and she cared for him. Before long, we heard Jack coming up behind us, for we had walked very slowly to wait for him. "'Promise not to tell anybody what I said, Captain,' said Marnie, as girls do as soon as they had told their secrets. Anyhow, I know I never did tell anyone but you. This is the first time I have talked of all that, the first time since I took the train from that place. I am not going to tell you all about the day. Miss Marnie introduced me to her mother, 
who was a quiet, hard-faced old New England farmer's widow, and to her cousins and relations, and there were plenty of them too at dinner, and there was the parson besides. He was what they call a hard-shell Baptist in those parts, with a long shaven upper lip and a whacking appetite, and a sort of superior look, as if he didn't expect to see many of us hereafter. The way a New York pilot looks round, and orders things about, when he boards an Italian cargo-dragger, as if the ship weren't up to much anyway, though it was his business to see that she didn't get aground. That's the way a good many parsons look, I think. He said grace, as if he were ordering the men to sheet home the top-gallant sail, and get the helm up. After dinner we went out on the piazza, for it was warm autumn weather, and the young folks went off in pairs along the beach road, and the tide had turned and was beginning to come in. The morning had been clear and fine, but by four o'clock it began to look like a fog, and the damp came up out of the sea and settled on everything. Jack said he'd go down to his cottage and have a last look, for the wedding was to be at five o'clock or soon after, and he wanted to light the lights so as to have things look cheerful. "'I will just take a last look,' he said again, as we reached the house. We went in, and he offered me another cigar, and I lit it and sat down in the parlour. I could hear him moving about, first in the kitchen and then upstairs, and then I heard him in the kitchen again, and then, before I knew anything, I heard somebody moving upstairs again. I knew he couldn't have got up those stairs as quick as that. He came into the parlour, and he took a cigar himself, and while he was lighting it, I heard those steps again overhead. His hand shook, and he dropped the match. "'Have you got in somebody to help?' I asked. "'No,' Jack answered sharply, and struck another match. "'There's somebody upstairs, Jack,' I said. "'Don't you hear footsteps?' "'It's the wind, Captain,' Jack answered but I could see he was trembling. "'That isn't any wind, Jack,' I said. "'It's still and foggy. I'm sure there's somebody upstairs.' "'If you are so sure of it, you'd better go and see for yourself, Captain,' Jack answered almost angrily. He was angry because he was frightened. I left him before the fireplace and went upstairs. There was no power on earth that could make me believe I hadn't heard a man's footsteps overhead. I knew there was somebody there, but there wasn't. I went into the bedroom, and it was all quiet, and the evening light was streaming in, reddish through the foggy air. And I went out on the landing, and looked in the little back room that was meant for a servant girl or a child. And as I came back again, I saw that the door of the other room was wide open, though I knew Jack had locked it. He had said the lock was no good. I looked in. It was a room as big as the bedroom, but almost dark, for it had shutters, and they were closed. There was a musty smell, as of old gear, and I could make out that the floor was littered with sea-chests, and that there were oilskins and such stuff piled on the bed. But I still believed that there was somebody upstairs, and I went in, and struck a match and looked round. 
I could see the four walls and the shabby old paper, an iron bed and a cracked looking-glass, and the stuff on the floor. But there was nobody there. So I put out the match and came out and shut the door and turned the key. Now, what I am telling you is the truth. When I had turned the key, I heard footsteps walking away from the door inside the room. Then I felt queer for a minute, and when I went downstairs I looked behind me, as the men at the wheel used to look behind them, on board the Helen B. Jack was already outside on the steps smoking. I have an idea that he didn't like to stay inside alone. Well, he asked, trying to seem careless. I didn't find anybody, I answered, but I heard somebody moving about. I told you it was the wind, said Jack contemptuously. I ought to know, for I live here, and I hear it often. There was nothing to be said to that, so we began to walk down toward the beach. Jack said there wasn't any hurry, as it would take Miss Marnie some time to dress for the wedding. So we strolled along, and the sun was settling through the fog, and the tide was coming in. I knew the moon was full, and that when she rose, the fog would roll away from the land as it does sometimes. I felt that Jack didn't like my having heard that noise, so I talked of other things, and asked him about his prospects, and before long we were chatting as pleasantly as possible. I haven't been at many weddings in my life, and I don't suppose you have, but that one seemed to me to be all right until it was pretty near over, and then I don't know whether it was part of the ceremony or not, but Jack put out his hand and took Marnie's and held it a minute, and looked at her, while the parson was still speaking. Marnie turned as white as a sheet and screamed. It wasn't a loud scream, but just a sort of stifled little shriek, as if she were half frightened to death. And the parson stopped, and asked her what was the matter, and the family gathered round. "'Your hand's like ice,' said Marnie to Jack, "'and it's all wet.' She kept looking at it, as she got hold of herself again. "'Don't feel cold to me,' said Jack, and he held the back of his hand against his cheek. "'Try it again.' Marnie held out hers, and touched the back of his hand timidly at first, and then took hold of it. "'Why, that's funny,' she said. "'She's been as nervous as a witch all day,' said Mrs. Brewster severely. "'It is natural,' said the parson, that young Mrs. Benton should experience a little agitation at such a moment. Most of the bride's relations lived at a distance and were busy people, so it had been arranged that the dinner we'd had in the middle of the day was to take the place of a dinner afterwards, and that we should just have a bite after the wedding was over, and then that everybody should go home and the young couple would walk down to the cottage by themselves. When I looked out, I could see the light burning brightly in Jack's cottage, a quarter of a mile away. I said I didn't think I could get any train to take me back before half-past nine, 
but Mrs. Brewster begged me to stay until it was time, as she said her daughter would want to take off her wedding dress before she went home, for she had put on something white with a wreath that was very pretty, and she couldn't walk home like that, could she? So when we had all had a little supper, the party began to break up, and when they were all gone, Mrs. Brewster and Marnie went upstairs, and Jack and I went out on the piazza to have a smoke, as the old lady didn't like tobacco in the house. The full moon had risen now, and it was behind me as I looked down towards Jack's cottage, so that everything was clear and white, and there was only the light burning in the window. The fog had rolled down to the water's edge, and a little beyond, for the tide was high or nearly, and was lapping up over the last reach of sand within fifty feet of the beach road. Jack didn't say much as we sat smoking, but he thanked me for coming to his wedding, and I told him I hoped he would be happy, and so I did. I dare say both of us were thinking of those footsteps upstairs just then, and that the house wouldn't seem so lonely with a woman in it. By and by we heard Marnie's voice talking to her mother on the stairs, and in a minute she was ready to go. She had put on again the dress she had worn in the morning. Well, they were ready to go now. It was all very quiet out of the day's excitement, and I knew they would like to walk down that path alone, now that they were man and wife at last. I bade them good-night, although Jack made a show of pressing me to go with them by the path as far as the cottage, instead of going to the station by the beach road. It was all very quiet, and it seemed to me a sensible way of getting married. And when Marnie kissed her mother good-night, I just looked the other way, and knocked my ashes over the rail of the piazza. So they started down the straight path to Jack's cottage, and I waited a minute with Mrs. Brewster, looking after them, before taking my hat to go. They walked side by side, a little shyly at first, and then I saw Jack put his arm round her waist. As I looked, he was on her left, and I saw the outline of the two figures very distinctly against the moonlight on the path, and the shadow on Marnie's right was broad and black as ink, and it moved along, lengthening and shortening with the unevenness of the ground beside the path. I thanked Mrs. Brewster, and bade her good-night, and though she was a hard New England woman, her voice trembled a little as she answered, but, being a sensible person, she went in and shut the door behind her as I stepped out on the path. I looked after the couple in the distance a last time, meaning to go down to the road so as not to overtake them. But when I had made a few steps, I stopped and looked again, for I knew I had seen something queer, though I had only realised it afterwards. I looked again, and it was plain enough now, and I stood stock still, staring at what I saw. Marnie was walking between two men. The second man was just the same height as Jack, 
both being about half a head taller than she. Jack on her left, in his black tailcoat and round hat, and the other man on her right. Well, he was a sailor-man in wet oilskins. I could see the moonlight shining on the water that ran down him, and on the little puddle that had settled where the flap of his sou'wester was turned up behind, and one of his wet, shiny arms was round Marnie's waist, just above Jack's. I was fast to the spot where I stood, and for a minute I thought I was crazy. We'd had nothing but some cider for dinner, and tea in the evening, otherwise I'd have thought something had got into my head, though I was never drunk in my life. It was more like a bad dream after that. I was glad Mrs. Brewster had gone in. As for me, I couldn't help following the three, in a sort of wonder, to see what would happen, to see whether the sailor-man in his wet togs would just melt away into the moonshine. But he didn't. I moved slowly, and I remembered afterwards that I walked on the grass instead of on the path, as if I were afraid they might hear me coming. I suppose it all happened in less than five minutes after that, but it seemed as if it must have taken an hour. Neither Jack nor Marnie seemed to notice the sailor. She didn't seem to know that his wet arm was round her, and little by little they got near the cottage, and I wasn't a hundred yards from them when they reached the door. Something made me stand still then. Perhaps it was fright, for I saw everything that happened, just as I see you now. Marnie set her foot on the step to go up, and as she went forward, I saw the sailor slowly lock his arm in Jack's, and Jack didn't move to go up. Then Marnie turned round on the step, and they all three stood that way for a second or two. She cried out then. I heard a man cry like that once, when his arm was taken off by a steam crane, and she fell back in a heap on the little piazza. I tried to jump forward, but I couldn't move, and I felt my hair rising under my hat. The sailor turned slowly where he stood, and swung Jack round by the arm steadily and easily, and began to walk him down the pathway from the house. He walked him straight down that path, as steadily as fate, and all the time I saw the moonlight shining on his wet oilskins. He walked in through the gate, and across the beach road, and out upon the wet sand where the tide was high. Then I got my breath with a gulp, and ran for them across the grass, and vaulted over the fence, and stumbled across the road. But when I felt the sand under my feet, the two were at the water's edge, and when I reached the water, they were far out, and up to their waists, and I saw that Jack Benton's head had fallen forward on his breast, and his free arm hung limp beside him, while his dead brother steadily marched him to his death. The moonlight was on the dark water, but the fog-bank was white beyond, and I saw them against it, and they went slowly and steadily down. The water was up to their armpits, and then up to their shoulders, and then I saw it rise up to the black rim of Jack's hat, but they never wavered, 
and the two heads went straight on, straight on, till they were under, and there was just a ripple in the moonlight where Jack had been. It has been on my mind to tell you that story whenever I got a chance. You have known me man and boy a good many years, and I thought I would like to hear your opinion. Yes, that's what I always thought. It wasn't Jim that went overboard, it was Jack. And Jim just let him go when he might have saved him. And then Jim passed himself off for Jack with us and with the girl. If that's what happened, he got what he deserved. People said the next day that Marnie found it out as they reached the house, and that her husband just walked out into the sea and drowned himself, and they would have blamed me for not stopping him if they'd known that I was there. But I never told what I had seen, for they wouldn't have believed me. I just let them think I'd come too late. When I reached the cottage and lifted Marnie up, she was raving mad. She got better afterwards, but she was never right in her head again. Oh, you want to know if they found Jack's body? I don't know whether it was his, but I read in a paper at a southern port, where I was with my new ship, that two dead bodies had come ashore in a gale down east, in pretty bad shape. They were locked together, and one was a skeleton in oilskins. End of section 10